This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. We appreciate you being with us here on this Wednesday evening, and we've got a lot to get into. And as always, we start with the latest from the Alabama Department of Public Health and taking a look at coronavirus by the numbers. So let's go ahead and pull up the latest update. And you can see here that uh, we've got... Uh, Sorry about this, guys. I've got a new monitor set up, and so I'm having to uh, literally read this backwards. Uh, (laughs) So having a little trouble here. Uh, But anyway, you can see there that Alabama has 15,843 cases, 195,794 tests have been performed, 581 people in the state of Alabama, unfortunately, have lost their lives due to the coronavirus, and we have 1,719 hospitalizations. One thing I did want to draw your attention to here, too, you'll notice that the color scheme is quite different than yesterday. That is not because the state suddenly started dropping or declining in their confirmed cases per 100,000. That's not what that is. So what you're seeing there, what you're looking at, uh, it's just the fact that they've changed how the the colors go. Because, I mean, you may remember yesterday, basically the entire state was bright red. And I do appreciate that they've changed up the color scheme a little. I think that that's actually helpful. Because what you'll notice looking at that is that it it doesn't look like it did yesterday where we were having some, you know, counties that were by all means not doing all that badly in the bright, bright red, making it look super scary. And so this is, it gives you a much more realistic idea of where the hot zones in the state are, at least per capita, per 100,000 people. And so, you know, just, I, I want to, at the same time, caution everybody about thinking, oh, well, this means that Montgomery and central Alabama is doing much better. Well, no, the numbers have remained the same. It's just that the, the, the new color scheme more correctly indicates about the level of threat that there is in each of these counties. And so you'll notice that, Al, uh, that Montgomery County, for example, still has the highest rate per 100,000 people of confirmed cases of any of the counties containing one of Alabama's major cities, but it's not in that that big bright red uh, thing. So that does give you a, a little bit better. Uh, it's a better understanding, a better visual might be the better way to say it, a better visualization of exactly the state of the different counties throughout the state of Alabama. Now, one thing that I do want you to notice as well is you'll notice that even though it has remained the same since... I guess they first started counting it about five, six days ago, the presumed recoveries, that this is the first time it has been updated. And they added a little indicator under there saying updated weekly. So I guess that explains why we were not seeing the updated presumed recoveries. And that's a significant increase on the presumed recoveries because you remember it was just over 7,000 and now it's at about uh, 9,400. So actually, we're doing pretty well on the presumed recoveries, and of course, that's a good sign. 
uh, certainly glad that that is taking place. But nonetheless, uh, I, I do think that the upgrades, the updates have done a little better job of helping you understand exactly where the state of Alabama and exactly where your particular county, regardless of where in the Yellowhammer state you may be listening to us, or, you know, if you're listening to us from outside the state, you just want to check up on your family or, or check up on how each county in the state of Alabama is doing, that gives you a lot better indication of where you're standing on that. Now, let's go ahead and look at the new confirmed cases in the state of Alabama. You can see there that uh, significantly better than yesterday, we're back in the normal range today for new cases in a single day. Yesterday, of course, with the the crazy having the biggest day ever, you can see that yesterday graph there on the graph there. Pretty big spike yesterday at 666. No, I promise I didn't make that number up. That really was the number of new cases, uh, regardless of the the scary nature of the number there. But you'll see today that we're back to 447, which is, you know, a little above average, but not anywhere near the jump that we saw yesterday. So that's certainly good. See, what would have been really scary, what would have been something that we certainly could have at least justified that, you know, there should be probably a more visceral reaction to this thing is if at some point we, we had roughly the same amount of numbers today that we did yesterday or even more. If we started pulling to where we had in excess of 600 on a regular basis day in and day out, Alabama would have a really big problem on its hands. But so far, well, I say that. Not necessarily. If that confirmed case is translated into hospitalizations and deaths, then it would have a really big problem on its hands. As long as the number goes up and the hospitalizations and deaths don't, we're actually okay, but there's a good chance that it would have led to an increase in hospitalizations. But if we were seeing an uptick from 400 to 666, like we did yesterday, and then saw that go up another 200 every single day, then that would have been very, very difficult for the Yellowhammer State to control. But considering we're back down to just barely above average today, we'll have to see, of course, how it goes later. But that's really a pretty good sign that yesterday was main, mainly an outlier and not a new tendency that we were seeing. So the, the cooling off a little bit does help it to a degree. Let's go ahead and look at the uh, the next chart, which is how well we're doing on testing. And you'll notice, and this is one thing that is really disturbing to a, a, a degree, our confirmed cases continue to rise substantially despite the fact that we're not doing nearly the level of testing beforehand. That is not necessarily a bad thing. That does not necessarily mean, because you can see there on the graph, that we have had very little testing compared to what we had become accustomed to over the past four days. Uh, I say very little. It's not horrible, but it's definitely not at the levels that we had become somewhat accustomed to seeing a few weeks ago. So there's a couple different ways to read that, and I'm going to give you both of them and, and basically let you decide which to you sounds the more plausible, which one is more likely. So the couple different ways to read that is that first, the fact that we're not testing all that much anymore means that, uh, but we're still continuing to, to see a pretty substantial rise in cases, means that 
only the people that really need to be tested are the ones coming in and getting tested. And only the people that are actually symptomatic are going in and using that resource. And Alabama actually has more capacity than it has in uh, in the past to be able to do that testing. And so it's not a lack of testing. It's not a lack of equipment. It's a lack of people wanting to go get tested that is resulting in that drop-off in testing. And that is because not that many people are feeling sick. But the ones that do, those tend to be the ones that actually do have the virus. And so you're getting a a larger ratio of people that actually need the test going in and getting the test. That is one way to read it. The second way to read that is that, and I think that this is untrue, but, well, I say that. There may be aspects of truth to both ways to read that, but I, I definitely lean more towards the one I just gave you the explanation for. The second way to read it is we're seeing this increase in numbers despite the fact that people just aren't going to get tested anymore. And so when it started out, it was novel. I mean, it is the novel coronavirus. But when it started out, it was kind of a novel thing to do. Everybody was kind of panicked. And so a whole bunch of people that probably didn't really need to be tested went out just to to make sure that they did not have the virus. And so you had a whole lot of unnecessary testing. But the thing is, when you're looking at the numbers now, it could just be that we're missing a whole lot of people that actually do need testing, or at the very least, because it's not a novel thing anymore, they're holding off until they are symptomatic or they are pretty sure that they've got the virus to actually get the testing. Now, it may be a combination of both of those things. I tend to think that the first one is more realistic, that it's more plausible, because people are a little bit better informed, know more what to look for, and that novelty effect is worn off, and so they're not getting tested unless they're pretty darn sure that they've already got the thing. And so I think that it is a combination of both of those things, but I don't think that there are massive numbers of people that have the virus that are in really bad shape, critical condition. There may be some people that are out there that get the sniffles and don't realize it's coronavirus, and you know it'd be better if we had the testing on those people but it just seems unlikely that there's a large portion of the population that are going out and doing that. And so the increase in numbers and the decrease in testing, it could be a, a bad sign. It could mean that there are a lot of asymptomatic people walking around out there. But here's the other thing. Here's the other side of that. You also have to keep in mind that our presumed recoveries, as listed by the Alabama Department of Public Health, and surely they're lowballing that just out of an abundance of caution because they're saying, hey, let's wait 14 days to make sure these people aren't contagious, even though there has never been a case worldwide, at least so far as I know of, this was true at least about a week ago when I read it, of the virus actually lasting and, and being contagious for more than 10 days. So from the point that you test positive to the point that you are no longer contagious, that period has never lasted longer than 10 days. They say the incubation period is 14, just to be on the safe side, and I understand that. But the point in all of that is, if there are a whole bunch of people right now, at the very least, 9,000 people in the state of Alabama, granted, big state, 4.88 million, 9,000 is not a ton. But if there are a whole bunch of people like that that got tested and know they have the virus, and there's probably a decent amount of people that also are pretty, you know, pretty convinced that they had the virus at one point, they just never actually officially got tested for it, and they're walking around. 
basically immune to the thing, at least for right now, then that's also a really good thing. And so that's got to be a factor, too, is that once you've got the virus, you're not going in for two, three, four tests to make sure that you don't have it. And since you're not going into those tests, then you're not ratcheting up, you're not registering on the number of tests that they have for the state overall. And so there's a number of contributing factors that could be leading to less overall tests, but still having a pretty significant increase in our overall rate of confirmed cases. Now, let's go ahead and look at the new hospitalizations. And you can see here in hospitalizations, hospitalizations are up a little bit. They're above average. I think that that's certainly fair to say. So you look there and you see that we've got 48 new hospitalizations as of today. And what's going on here, and I was talking about this a little bit yesterday, I was not convinced that yesterday's spike was something that was the result of the uptick in cases that we had about seven days ago. Because usually hospitalizations tend to ratchet up a little bit about a week after we see a big spike in new cases. Well, here we are about eight days after our most recent, our, our biggest spike before the one that happened yesterday. And we're seeing a pretty big spike, or no, that would be seven days. So here we are seven days after our most recent big spike in cases. And we saw an uptick, not way above average, but you know, in the forties is above average for us when it comes to hospitalizations. And I said, because it's just one day, I'm not convinced that that is a result of that. Now that we've got another day that's even slightly larger than yesterday, you can say that with a, a decent amount of certainty. It is not at all unreasonable to suggest that the reason that we're seeing that now is because we had a, a pretty substantial spike a few days ago in confirmed cases. Now seeing that that pattern is playing out and that spike is, has more or less sustained over the course of two days and manifests itself in the number of our new hospitalizations in Alabama, it's pretty safe to say that that is the result of that. So definitely keep your eyes on that. I imagine it will start dropping off soon, just like our, our confirmed cases started dropping off not long after we saw that increased number. So that's probably going to result, I, I would imagine we drop, again, this is just a prediction. I would imagine we drop to somewhere around the 40 mark, you know, 42, 38, something like that tomorrow. And then it starts dropping off significantly the closer we get to the weekend. But, you know, th that probably is the result of that. Now, here's the really interesting part of that and the thing that we really have to, to watch out for because we've already looked at the hospitalizations. Now let's go ahead and look at the deaths. So these are the new COVID-19 deaths in Alabama. And you'll notice they're pretty darn low. Granted, it is more of a lagging statistic than hospitalizations, which means the spike from seven days ago, it could manifest itself in deaths. But even with the the increase in numbers of cases right now, we're not seeing that. And that's a really good sign. Not sure exactly what that means, but I mean, today we only had six deaths in the entire state from this virus. And so that's really, really good. 
is this thing after seeing our hospitalization rates? Are we going to see here in two or three days a pretty big uptick in coronavirus deaths? That seems unlikely. So just based on this, we are having a a substantial increase in the number of confirmed cases. We're having a somewhat elevated level, at least over the past two days, of hospitalizations. But our deaths are still really low. And it's so far, our deaths have not reflected that increase in cases. And we've been having that increase over the course of a couple of weeks. And we're actually going to do some seven-day and 14-day averages tomorrow and sort of do an analysis on that. So be sure to check out that show. I wanted to do it again on Thursday to, because we did it on last Thursday. And so I want to basically give a, a week update to give it enough time. But really, the hospitalization numbers used to be more reflective of the deaths in the, when we first started this. You'll remember that when we were first looking at these statistics, I've been doing this for about two months now, digging into the numbers every single day, giving you your Alabama coronavirus update, that when we were digging into the numbers early on, that trend of elevation in cases translated about a week later into elevation of hospitalizations, and then two or three days after that, an elevation in the level of deaths. So far, we're not seeing that pattern. We are seeing an elevation in cases and a slight but not quite correlative elevation in hospitalizations. And so far, no correlation in deaths whatsoever. So there's a couple different ways that you could really try to dig in and understand what's going on there. First, it could be that fear is driving people into hospitals. So in other words... Because it's not a novel thing, they've kind of grown accustomed to the shutdowns and whatnot, they may not be going to get tested as often. But people may be, if they do have it, they're scared, and so they go to the hospital whether or not they really need to or not. And I'm not saying don't go to the hospital if you're experiencing symptoms and, and think that this thing is beyond your ability to handle. I definitely, like I've said from the very beginning, call your doctor first and see if you do need to go to the hospital to receive treatment. Because... You know, you don't want to take up a bed. You don't want to take up room in the hospital if, if you don't need to. And also, that'll save you a lot of money. So there's also a, an economic side of that as well, not just the, the total cost to our, our health care system. But that's really, really important because at the very beginning when they were reflective and you could see hospitalizations directly translate into deaths, what may be happening now is our hospitalization rates have inflated a little bit because once people do get it and they are symptomatic, they're feeling kind of scared, they're kind of anxious, they want to make sure that they're already in the hospital because remember, especially when you're looking at the way that the media was portraying this early on, basically they were saying that this thing is, is 10 times more fatal than the flu and but you know the mortality rate for people under the age of 70 is practically non-existent. And so there may be an awful lot of people that probably are in, there's no threat to their life. There's really no reason for them to go into a hospital that may be flocking to a hospital as soon as they feel these symptoms, but they aren't quite doing so to the point because they're really not as sick as they may think they are or perceive that they are. They're not, of course, dying. 
And so that may be the reason that you're seeing an inflated hospital rate, but not an inflated death rate. Uh, another thing that may be a factor here, and this is one thing that I've been kind of talking about a little bit since the beginning of this thing, is it possible that maybe the super vulnerable just kind of got it early on? Like if they were really, really vulnerable to this virus, those super vulnerable people, and I'm talking about the people with multiple risk factors, that kind of thing, they went ahead and got it early on. And because of that, of course, tragically, they wound up losing their life and are no longer a factor or, you know, beat the thing and are now basically immune to it, at least for the time being. They're not likely to contract it anytime in the near future. And so because of that, we don't have to worry about them. And so that's the reason that you're not seeing that reflected in the death rate is most of the people that are getting it now are younger, healthier people that may even need hospitalization or at the very least get scared and, and go ahead and check into a hospital when they do start experiencing symptoms that they, they perceive as being kind of severe, but aren't dying from it. That's also a possibility, and I think both are probably factors in all of this. But the important thing to take away from this is, obviously as long as our death rates stay down, then we should be all right. And when you're looking at the deaths, or sorry, when you're looking at the hospitalizations, our hospitalization rates are still well below pandemic levels. They're still significantly below where people were like, okay, we're, we're getting into the danger zone now. You remember that we looked over when all this started, how prepared Alabama is for the virus and the resources at our disposal. Gang, we've not even come close to using up all of those things. Like We're nowhere near the level that we would be. This is at least from a, now granted, it's a little bit worse in Montgomery right now than it is in Mobile and Huntsville and Birmingham. But even so, even in Montgomery, we're not like in danger of losing somebody because we have a lack of medical resources. We're not even close to those levels, at least for the time being. And so right now it looks as though still doing pretty well, and, and the ray of hope is, even with the elevated hospital rate, which we definitely want to keep an eye on, even with that, we're not going to be hitting anything where it's an unsustainable level of hospitalizations, at least not anytime soon. So I'm going to go ahead and transition, because for those of you who've been watching the program for a while, you know that on Wednesday I try to, if I can, if, if we have time, touch on something that, that has to do with scripture, that has to do with Christian worldview, that kind of thing. And so I wanted to share this one with you today. This is actually a meme, and I know, I know it's a cartoon, I know it's goofy, but it actually does talk about a very profound truth. So you can see here uh, this meme that I'm going to go ahead and pull up. So it's got the guy there that's saying, I'm going to go ahead and jump over this fence, I'm, I'm tired of being confined by this, and the guy says, wait, hang on, it's not a fence, it's a guardrail. Those are, you know, if you happen to be listening on the audio only. That's the premise of this whole little cartoon. But the thing about that is, I know it's goofy, but it illustrates a really important point. It's something that I've been saying for a really long time. One of the biggest issues that we have had, not just as Americans, even though I think that America is, is one of the stages on which this battle is being fought, one of the biggest issues that we've had with people that disagree with the worldview has been exactly that. In fact, I remember several years ago, 
Apologetics Press, which is an organization right here in Montgomery. It's headquartered here. They had a debate with a guy, Dan Barker, who is the founder of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. We, we hear about those guys all the time. Uh, you know, anytime somebody does anything remotely religious somewhere near a government function, they flip out and threaten to sue them. So that's their side, and this is the side that we're talking about. There was something that he said in a debate that he had with Apologet Express. Uh, I believe it was Kyle Butt that was doing that particular debate with, with Barker. They got into it, and basically one of the things that he said as his closing statement is, look, I don't think that religious people are bad people. I just think they need to get the monkey off their back. And basically, the thrust of, of his whole argument was, well, religion's not necessarily a bad thing, but the problem that I have with it, the issue that I take with it, is primarily that what it does is it keeps people from doing what they, they want to do. It's something that inhibits you from doing what what you would do to, to make you happy. And, and that's really, even though they wouldn't admit it, they wouldn't necessarily say it, even though Barker did, a lot of people that are both atheistic and people that maybe claim to be Christians but don't actually live it, they don't model their life after the teachings of Christ, that's really how a lot of people see religion. Some people might not admit it, some people would openly admit it, but ultimately... When it comes down to it, that is one of the single biggest issues with people not adopting a Christian worldview and not altering their lives to more accurately reflect the life of Jesus Christ. Because what they see is offense. They see offense that is keeping them from greener pastures. And what they don't see is what's on the other side of that fence. And so, without asking any questions without trying to figure out why that fence is there, they decide they're going to jump over the fence only to discover that it's a guardrail. That fence is not there to oppress them. It's there to keep them safe. It actually preserves their liberty in a lot of ways. Because if you're... We're, we're going to use a biblical example here that Jesus himself used. If we're talking about the, the flock of God being in the fold, being in the flock, that is freedom from things that might tear you apart. Not to say that you'll never have to deal with wolves, because Lord knows that happens, no matter where you are or what stage of life you are. But you're definitely a lot safer in the fold than you are wandering off by yourself. And so many people that don't adopt the Christian worldview... They see this thing, God's commandments, as an obstruction. But if you really understand what they are, God doesn't arbitrarily make rules. If he puts a rule or a law in place, he is doing so specifically for our own good. He is doing so because he knows that it benefits us. As our creator and maker, he understands how we work. He understands how our life is, is going to be with his laws and without his laws, and for our own benefit, he puts those laws in place. Now, that's different than somebody trying to force us to follow those laws through the blunt force of, of rule, or sorry, through the blunt force of law. God's rules are put in place, and they're voluntary. You can do these things, you can choose to do these things, or you can choose to not do these things. 
and normally when we don't, I mean, there are exceptions, but normally when we don't follow these things, when bad things happen to us, it's not God punishing us directly. It's just us falling prey to the consequences of our own decisions. So just like that guy that didn't realize that was an offense, he thought on the other side there was just more ground and it turns out there wasn't. And unfortunately, human beings, myself included, tend to have to learn this thing the hard way. It's unfortunate, but that's true. Think about how many of our societal issues could be solved if more people saw God's laws as something that is beneficial and helpful as opposed to something that just keeps them from doing what they want to do. I mean, look at, for example, the gun debate. Even though there's no truth to it, even though curtailing a person's gun rights do nothing to stop things like mass shootings, that tends to be the momentum moment that convinces people that they should do something to regulate and stifle the ability, the, the right to keep and bear arms. Normally, that is the argument that people fall prey to more often than not that aren't really educated on the issue. So let's go back to the origin of that. Why are mass shootings happening? Well, if you teach a child their entire life that there is no objective truth, that there is no objective good and evil, and they are raised thinking that they are nothing but the descendants of, of an ape, and they have no purpose, they have no higher calling, they have, the universe doesn't care about them, and that they're going to be gone, they're just going to be erased by history, and over time nobody's going to remember them, because remember, one of the number one motivations, unless of course you're talking about Muslim terrorism, because that's a whole different ball of wax, and it's obvious that those people aren't adopting a Christian worldview, they adopt a different religious view, that if you're talking about atheism, what happens then is nihilism sets in. The person that is presumably going to commit some kind of mass killing, he thinks, well, if human life isn't objectively good, if human life isn't objectively something that is sacred and needs to be protected, and the only thing that we get in life is some kind of notoriety, the number one motivation for mass shooters is to gain that notoriety. It's one of the reasons that I and several other news outlets have now made a pledge to not mention the names of the shooters, because that's exactly what they want. Even if they wind up dying, even if they wind up killing themselves at the end of it, they want their name to be remembered in infamy. They see the treatment that other mass shooters, and that's the reason these things are contagious and tend to happen in waves, that, you know, a week or so after one mass shooting, you'll get another attempt at a mass shooting right after that. You have a lot of copycat killers when it comes to mass shootings. It's because they feel like they're in this impersonal, imperfect universe, and if the only way that anybody's even going to remember who they are is to become some kind of villain like this, then they're willing to do that. You have completely devalued the sanctity of human life and simultaneously told these kids that nothing they do matters, that the only thing that really matters, the only thing that anyone's going to remember about you is your name, that you know, establishing some kind of, of fame and having somebody to listen to you, having someone to read your thoughts, to read your manifesto, that's only going to happen if you commit one of these heinous acts. They feel like that's the only way that anybody can hear them. And so, if we taught 
I mean, of course, tragedies would inevitably happen. But if you had kids that were taught from the very beginning, you are a child of God that love. You are a child of God, a God that loves you, that created you, that cares about you, and He wants you to live a good life. And I don't mean a good life in you get everything you want, a good life in that you do good and serve your fellow man and protect them and protect life. Well, that story could have a very different ending. I mean, think about free speech. One of the biggest dangers we have to free speech nowadays is that we can't get along. And I, every single day, get into the political realm, I step into the political arena, and I know that I'm going to hit people, and I know that I'm going to get hit. It's a blood sport. And that's fine. I know that going into it. But the thing is, for the longest time in this country, when we all did have that basic line of principles, that basic belief in God that held us together, we could go and beat each other up politically, rhetorically, and then step away from it, still being friends. When you look at the person on the other side of that as a fellow child of God, who God loves, it's really hard to hate that person, even if you wind up vehemently disagreeing with them. And so, if we, again, had that Christian worldview, a lot of these calls to silence people or cancel them because they're saying things that are unpopular or try to get all dissenting voices taken down, again, the, the subjective morality thing. If you believe that your truth is the truth, and that your truth is your truth because it's your truth, then of course you want to silence everybody else that disagrees with you. If you believe there is the truth, and you probably have some aspect of it, but I mean, you're a human being, you could be wrong, and that ultimately that God is right, well, that completely changes your perspective on whether or not you should silence somebody because you're always aware of the fact that maybe you've got it wrong and maybe you need to hear that correction. If you're told that your truth is the only thing that matters to you, then why would you bother listening to anybody else? If their view is just as subjective as yours is, and theirs is just as good as yours is, and all ideas are equally valuable and, and equally good then why would you bother hearing out anybody else? And let's look at another big one, abortion. I mean, I think that one would be obvious. Whether or not you subscribe to a, a certain church's ideology on abortion or teaching on it, the overall idea that human life is valuable, that human sexuality should be something that is kept between a man and a woman, that solves all of those problems. I mean, that solves a lot of the problems that are rightfully, to some degree, being complained about with Me Too. I mean, that whole thing started, I think that it's gone a little crazy where you can't even walk up to a woman and ask her out for coffee, and that can be seen as sexual assault. I mean, obviously, that's the crazy lunatic fringe of the Me Too movement. But the overall idea that men should be faithful and they should not you know, make any sexual advances to anybody that is not their that is not their wife that is not consenting. If you limited sexual contact or sexuality to something exclusively between a man or a woman, you solve ninety eight percent of the problems that they were talking about. I mean, it obviously married people cannot give consent, and if somebody takes advantage of, of their spouse even after they don't give consent, then that's obviously wrong. 
But I got to believe that it would solve a lot of these problems and a lot of people that, that don't really know what, you know, whether somebody's giving consent or not, or this idea that we, we have to have a contract every single time we make some kind of advance towards somebody. The biblical worldview solves all those problems. And going back to abortion, once you see every single individual as a unique created child of God that is a blessing, not a curse, not an inconvenience, something that is to be protected, granted, if we did the first thing that I just talked about, keeping sexuality between a, a married man and a married woman, well, that solves a lot of those problems too. That would eliminate the demand for most abortions in the first place. But, of course, if you see everybody like that, that solves issues with seeing the unborn as being less than people. That solves the problem of seeing people of a different race as less than people. That puts humanity on an even playing ground. And so, so many of our biggest problems in society would be solved if we just looked at God's commands as a guardrail that is put there for our benefit because God knows that we're humans and we make mistakes and we're going to do things that aren't going to uh, aren't going to benefit us we're going to want to do that and that guardrail is put in place to keep us safe from ourselves and from our own actions if we started looking at God's commands like that that would make a world of difference in our society that would solve most of society's problems to be quite frank because God would not make a law he would not put a rule forth unless he believed it was something that was going to benefit us. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.